0: Good morning, everybody. So good to worship with you this morning. Well, I want to begin this morning by telling you a little bit about my grandpa Ed. Uh, My grandpa Ed is a master craftsman in woodworking. And I remember going over to his uh, shop in his garage when I was a little kid and just being in awe over all the different kinds of nails and screws and drill bits and saw blades and also his meticulously detailed drawings and blueprints and all the different things he used to measure levels and Uh, speed squares, and uh, protractors, and his calculators. He had a couple calculators on his bench, and, and by watching them, I learned that woodworking is just as cerebral as it is physical, and not for me, because unlike Grandpa Ed, grandson Dylan couldn't follow the directions to assemble something from Ikea, let alone make the thing from a detailed blueprint, and grandson Dylan didn't measure things. He eyeballed things, and fifth grade math was pretty much the cutoff for grandson Dylan. Never made it very far beyond that point, so calculators were a no-go. Nevertheless, Grandpa Ed, he tried to pass down the woodworking craft, and for my 10th birthday, he gave me my own toolbox with a bunch of tools in it. And uh, I even tried. I tried to take up the woodworking craft. In seventh grade, I signed up for Woodshop. And uh, the first thing we made in Woodshop was a little three-legged stool, a milking stool. And uh, the whole project went pretty badly for me. Um, about five minutes into the project, I cut my thumb open on the bandsaw. And then by the end of the project, because for some reason I decided to come back and finish it, I had created the most misshapen, deformed, Frankensteinish thing that definitely wasn't level and would have probably given you a sliver if you sat on it. It was ugly. And then, this is hilarious, and then the woodshop teacher said, hey, and if you want, you can burn your initials into the bottom of your stool. And I was like, there is no way I'm putting my name on this thing. <laughs> oh, I wish I still had it so I could show you guys, but my dad threw it into a burn pile, so. <laughs> anyways, anyways, the point I'm trying to make with all this is that Woodworking is a highly intellectual and meticulous craft involving exact specifications and laser sharp precision and a scrupulous attention to detail. And sometimes, if one thing is off, even just slightly, it can compromise the whole project. And so, a good woodworker begins with the end in mind and creates from a good blueprint and he sticks scrupulously to that blueprint, and he tries to be super precise in all his measurements and cuts and everything so that, in the end, it all accords with the blueprint and is a real piece of art, and not just expensive firewood. And like a master craftsman, like my grandpa Ed, God, too, begins with the end in mind. He foreordains the end from the beginning. And he creates from a divine blueprint, which scripture calls his plan, or his purpose, or the counsel of his will. And he sticks scrupulously to that blueprint. He does exactly what he has willed to do from the beginning, and he does it perfectly. And each of these things appear at the end of Isaiah chapter 46, where God says, I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Now, this is astounding, because we know that we've seriously messed things up. And we're seriously messed up. And often the works of our hands are ugly, misshapen, deformed, Frankensteinish, in light of the holiness of God. And yet, somehow, God's perfect plan has never been compromised. Nothing has been off. It has all accorded somehow perfectly with his divine blueprint. And that's because God has never ceased to be in sovereign control over everything. And this is a complicated but glorious truth that we're gonna be talking about today through Zachariah's third night vision in which will have important implications for us. And Let me just say this. If there's anyone here that's showed up to church this morning and is sitting here right now feeling like a fraud, a faker, on the verge of being found out by all of us because you feel like you've strayed too far beyond God's reach, or you feel like you're too broken beyond repair, or you're not sure if you even belong here, then I have to tell you that there is a wonderful word of encouragement and hope for you today that God in his infallible plan for your life and in his deep love for you has graciously and undoubtedly brought you here this morning to hear. Okay, and I cannot wait to share it with you, but let's pray to him first. Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy, inspired, inerrant word this morning. Lord, we need your help for our little minds to grasp such glorious things as we will see in this night vision. And so we ask that you would come now and give us eyes to see what you would have us to see, and that as a result, you would be exalted in our hearts above all, amen. So we're in the book of the prophet Zechariah, which takes place a couple decades after the Judeans have returned to the land of Judah from exile in Babylon. And we've been looking at Zechariah's night visions or dreams in which Zechariah was shown symbolic images of the ways heaven will be meeting earth and God will be coming to redeem his people. And so far we've seen the man among the myrtles, and the horn-crushing craftsman, and now this morning we're gonna see the man with the measuring line. And if you grabbed a bulletin on your way in, um, there's a little half sheet in there with an outline and the full text of our passage this morning. So if it's helpful, you can just read the passage right off of that outline, and I'll be referring to that outline throughout the sermon. But let's read Zechariah chapter two. This is Zechariah's third night vision. And I, Zechariah, lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, run, say to that young man, Zechariah, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye, behold, I will shake my hand over them and they shall become plunder for those who served them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. All right, so the first thing Zacharias sees is verse one, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And I'll just tell you now that I think this man is Christ. And there are a number of clues in the text that I think point us right to him and we're gonna go through them quickly. The first clue is that this man is holding a measuring line. And this is a clue because the task of measuring is often said to be a divine activity in the Bible, something God does. Uh, Job chapter 38 verse five talks about how God stretched out a measuring line when he laid the foundations of the earth, meaning he made it according to exact specifications. And Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse nine talks about how God has stretched out a measuring line over his people, meaning those who belong to God do so according to exact specifications. And there are many other instances in scripture where measuring is said to be a divine activity, something God does, and it's something God does, think about this, because it's something that God by his very nature is. He is the measure, the rule of all things, okay? And the second clue as to the identity of the measure is that it's actually a double clue where the text says that he's going to see what is the length and width of Jerusalem. And what becomes more and more obvious as the night vision continues is that he's not talking about the old city. He's talking about the new city, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem antitype of the earthly Jerusalem prototype. Isaiah chapter 65 and Revelation chapter 21 tell us that it's literally heaven here on earth, the eternal city to come when Christ will bring a paradise restoration to all the earth and make his home here with us, which we talked about in the first night vision. And so the first part of, this, of the double clue is in the answer to this question, who can go to see the eternal city to come but the one who beholds the future in his omniscient mind? Okay, And the second part of this double clue is in the words to see. It's actually only one word in the Hebrew, ra'ah, and it's the same word which is repeated in Genesis chapter one where after every time God creates something new, there's this repeated refrain, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and God ra'ah that it was good. And this happens over and over and over to show us that God, being the measure of all things, is subjecting his own creation to a kind of Judicial scrutiny, meaning he's looking at it and pronouncing his divine verdict upon it. Yes, this accords with my divine blueprint. Yes, these specifications are exact. They measure perfectly. And so maybe the measurer is going to see the recreation garden paradise to come to similarly subject it to judicial scrutiny, just as God had done with the original creation, Garden Paradise, to ensure that it, too, accords perfectly with God's divine blueprint, his exact specifications and measurements. And the third clue is that it appears that the measurer is the ultimate speaker in verses four and five, and those words are being spoken on behalf of God. So let's look at this. In verse 3a, Zachariah talks about the angel who talked with me, and this is his interpreting angel, which we've talked about in other night visions. It's the angel that's kind of guiding him through these night visit visions and helping him understand what he's seeing. And then in verse 3b, another angel comes forward to meet the interpreting angel. And then in verse 4, this other angel tells the interpreting angel to run over to that young man, Zachariah, to deliver a message he's received from God, and that message is that, verses four and five, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it, and I will be to her a wall of fire, declares, uh, off wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Now, here's where commentators point out that this message continues and expounds upon the measurer's reply to Zachariah's question in verse two. And so, many commentators suggest that this other angel is speaking as a messenger for the measurer. And because verse five tells us that this message is from the Lord, that would mean that the measurer is God. And because verse one says that This measurer is a man whom Zechariah sees with his own eyes and scripture says that no one has ever seen God, the Father. This would tell us that this man is the same man as we saw in the first night vision, the man among the myrtles, the angel of the Lord, the God-man, Christ, whose pre-incarnate appearance here again is what theologians refer to as a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of the second member of the Trinity before he took on human flesh in the incarnation, something we actually see a few times in the Old Testament. Okay, and the fourth clue is that the proclamation section in verses six through 13 continues and expounds upon the themes in verses four and five. And God is said to be the speaker there too. And so basically all the first person speeches seem to fit together and point back to the measurer. And the fifth clue is that in verses eight, nine, and 11, God refers to himself as one who is being sent by God to his people. And so it's clear here that God is referring to another member of the Godhead, the Trinity. And so this further enforces the idea that the speaker here is Christ, the sent one, the one sent by God the Father to his people. And then lastly, the sixth clue is that in verses eight and nine, we learn that the sent one has an eschatological mission, or end times mission, to visit divine judgment upon the nations. And because John chapter five, verse 22, says that God the Father has given all judgment to the Son, and Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, says that Christ is returning to judge and make war against his enemies, The speaker in verses six through 13 must be Christ. And so, when we take all these clues together, I think we can make a very strong case that the man with the measuring line is Christ. And in favor of this interpretation, one very prominent Old Testament scholar, Meredith Klein, he concludes, the measurer is the word of God who is in the beginning with God and who was God. John chapter one, verses one through three. He is the maker of all things visible and invisible, Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, seen by Zechariah as now engaged in redemptive recreation as the architect and almighty constructor of the heavenly city, New Jerusalem, okay? And regarding the New Jerusalem, this night vision tells us three things. The first thing is that it's gonna be full. Verse four says, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. The picture is is that of a vast, unbounded countryside, so vast and so full of people that no walls could possibly contain them and keep them from spilling out. And the second thing we learn about the New Jerusalem is that it's gonna be holy. God says in verse 5a, and I will be to her a wall of fire all around. And I think this wall of fire is a metaphor for holiness for a couple reasons. Number one, we just read in the previous passage that one of the distinguishing features of the New Jerusalem is that it won't have walls, so this wall of fire must be metaphoric. And number two, God's holiness is often symbolized by fire in the Bible. From the flaming sword that God placed outside the Garden of Eden, Remember that? To guard that holy space from unholy man to the burning bush where Moses encountered the holiness of God. And in several other places in scripture, fire is used to show us symbolically holiness and and it shows us that God's holiness like fire is good but dangerous to unholy men who get too close. And so, I think this wall of fire here in Zechariah is a metaphor that tells us that like the Garden of Eden, the eternal city to come will be a holy space full of holy people who can stand in the fire of God's holiness without being consumed. And I think the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego kind of works as an analogy for this concept insofar as you know they were thrown into a furnace but walked out unscathed, while some of the guys who threw them in died just getting too close. That's kind of the picture here. And lastly, the third thing we learn about the New Jerusalem is that it's gonna be glorious. God says in verse 5b, and I will be the glory in her midst. John talked about this glory in Revelation chapter 21 verses 22 and 23 saying, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty, and the lamb, meaning the whole thing is permeated by the immediate presence of God. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the lamb. And so, now, with those things said, that the New Jerusalem will be full and holy and glorious, we move into the proclamation section, of the night vision in verses six through 13 where Christ explains how we ought to respond to these things. And the first part of the proclamation section is addressed to the people of Zion, God's people, verses six through 11, and it begins with a double imperative, two commands in verses six and seven. He says, up, up, flee from the land of the north. He's talking about Babylon, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad, I have exiled you as the four winds of the heavens declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. So the first thing Christ says here is, Judeans, get up and out of Babylon and escape to Zion. Now here's why this is so interesting. The Judeans aren't in Babylon anymore. They've been back in Judah for almost 20 years but God is speaking to them as if they're still there. And why? Well, because as we talked about in the book of Haggai and in the last night vision, the Judeans think they've returned from exile because they're back in their lands now, but they have yet to return to God whose presence the exile was intended to banish them from, meaning they're still in a kind of exile, a spiritual exile. And so when Christ says flee to Babylon and escape to Zion, what he obviously is not saying is return to Jerusalem or return to the Holy Land because they're already there. He seems to be using the words Babylon and Zion figuratively to say something like, Judeans, your souls are being held captive and your only hope of escape is that you Return to the place of God's presence and the place of God's rule over you. And then Christ gives an explanation, motivation for obeying this command in verses eight and nine saying, for thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye, behold, I will shake my hand over them and they shall become plunder for those who served them then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. So what Christ is saying here is, Judeans, the Lord has set his affection upon you and cares for you deeply. You are the apple of his eye. And he has seen all the oppression you have suffered by many hostile nations. And so run to him. Worship him. Align yourself with his people. Because I am returning to plunder every worldly and heaven-challenging nation and people and power and you do not want to be found among them when I come. Kind of reminds me of Lot and his family escaping the city of Sodom in Genesis chapter 19. It's the same same idea here, get out of the doomed city of man and run into the city of God. And then in verse 10a there's another imperative which which I love because it reinforces the idea that Christ isn't trying to scare the hell out of the Judeans to make them come running back to the Lord out of fear. He's trying to love the hell out of the Judeans to make their hearts, their hardened hearts, melt for the Lord. He says this in verse 10a, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Sing and rejoice. And then Christ continues with an explanation motivation in verses 10b and 11. For behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, which hearkens back to verse four, which tells us that the new Jerusalem will be full, and which points us forward to Revelation chapter seven, verses nine and 10, where John talks about this future fullness, saying, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes, and peoples, and languages, standing before the throne, and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Wow, this is like, this is like a reversal of the Tower of Babel situation in Genesis chapter 11. Like, like God is rewinding the tape of his scattering of all people across the earth. Bring them all back to one place to worship him. So cool. And then the last part of the proclamation section is addressed to all the world, verses 12 and 13 and it begins with a summary statement in verse 12. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Meaning, though it may seem that Judah has been abandoned because, well, the temple lies in ruins, everything is kind of a wasteland there, and and God had exiled them away from his presence. And though the wicked nations taunt them, saying, God has forsaken them. Psalm 71, verse 11. And where is their God now? Psalm 115, verse two. God's plan for his people shall stand, and he will never abandon them. Psalm 94, verse 14 says, the Lord will not forsake his people. He will never abandon his heritage. And then in verse 13a, Christ gives an imperative to all the world. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord. Hush, stop talking, put your hands over your mouths and listen, and why should they? Verse 13b, the explanation motivation, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. The lion of the tribe of Judah is on the move and he's coming for you, wicked nations. And that's Zachariah's third night vision. And what an encouragement all this must have been to the Judeans. I mean, just, just put yourselves in their shoes for a minute. Imagine that you're a Judean and imagine that your people were allowed to return to the land of Judah after having spent 70 years in exile in Babylon because of your sin, but when you return to the land, you wonder if maybe you took the wrong exit because all you see is a wasteland of rubble and ruins, and you think to yourself, God must have abandoned this place, and he must have abandoned us. But instead of then earnestly seeking the Lord, your people just sinfully, hard-heartedly just go on about their lives as if he's gone. But God graciously sends two prophets to his people around the same time. Haggai, who delivers a very practical down to earth, here's what you are doing and here's what you should be doing kind of message and Zechariah, who's seen some amazing things. He's seen the man among the myrtles and the horn crushing craftsman and the man with the measuring line and the message that Zechariah delivers through this third night vision is this. Judeans, your God has not abandoned you And more than that, he has a wonderful plan for your life. I know, he's given me a glimpse behind the scenes. I've seen the divine blueprint. I've seen the end of this great creation and redemption project. And let me tell you this, one day the city of God will be so full of people that you couldn't build enough walls to contain them. And one day the city of God will be ablaze with holiness, And one day the city of God will be glorious because God will be there. And so, Judeans, no matter where you're at, no matter what your circumstances are, return to this gracious God and sing to him. Rejoice in him. He is so worthy to be praised and he is coming soon. And watching world While the people of God sing, you be silent. And so the three applications here are pretty straightforward. To God's people, return to God, and sing to and rejoice in God. And to the world, stand in silence before God. And in the few minutes we have left, I wanna talk about specifically how the, three details regarding the New Jerusalem should inform these three applications, okay? So, so we're gonna look at how the fullness and holiness and glory of the New Jerusalem should inform now these three applications, our returning, our singing and rejoicing, and the world's silence. So I'm gonna pose these in the form of, of a question. Here's the first question. How should the future fullness of the New Jerusalem inform our returning, our singing and rejoicing, and the world's silence. So first, our returning. What does it look like to return to God in light of our knowledge of the future fullness of the new Jerusalem? Well, I think there are a few ways that sin can hold us captive here. One way is by a notion of superiority or a superiority complex. Dan was talking about this last week, where someone in the church thinks that they're better than others for whatever reason. And another way is by a notion of inferiority, or an inferiority complex, where someone in the church thinks they're worse than others for whatever reason. And still another way is by feeling like a fraud we're having imposters syndrome where someone in the church who's trusted in Jesus isn't sure they belong for whatever reason. Okay, and all of these pitfalls can occur in the church when we fail to recognize a few things. One thing is that we're all equally created in the image of God and equally fallen because of sin. In one sense, we're all the same. We're all in the same boat. And another thing it's a failure to recognize is that in a different sense, we're not all the same. We're all very unique, and that's a good thing. First Corinthians chapter 12 basically says, what good would the body of Christ be if we were all hands, or all feet, or all ears? It's a good thing that the body does not consist of one particular member, but of many. And no one member is more important than all the others. And to function properly, we really need each other. (laughs) And another thing it's a failure to recognize is that as we see in Ephesians chapter one verses four and five, God in his grace has sovereignly chosen for himself a people in Jesus Christ from before the foundation of the world, the text says, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons into the family of God, the universal church, according to the purpose of his will, the divine blueprint. We call this the doctrine of unconditional election, and what this means is that God saves whomever he is pleased to save, and it's by his grace, and it's through his son Jesus, and it's according to the purpose of his will, which means that nobody in the church can say you're in, or you're out because that's not our choice. That's God's sovereign choice. God is the one who stretches out the measuring line over his people. And so I think to return to God in light of the future fullness of the new Jerusalem would be to, as we read in Isaiah chapter 54, verse two, enlarge the place of our tent and let the curtains of our habitation be stretched out, lengthening our cords and strengthening our stakes, which is to say we should do everything in our power to make room for and welcome newcomers into the family of God and into our local churches without discrimination or partiality and giving all glory to God because he has done it. And this gives us a reason to sing and to rejoice that God is saving people according to a plan that was drafted in eternity and that in Christ, we're all one. It doesn't matter if we're Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free men, young or old. Jesus has broken down those natural walls of hostility. He's made us family. He's made us members of the same body and one day, we will all be standing together before the throne of God, worshiping him and rejoicing in him forever. Amen. O watching world, stand in silence, for you are still a spiritual orphan, estranged from the Father and his family. And the second question is this. How should the future holiness of the New Jerusalem inform our returning, our singing and rejoicing, and the world's silence? So first are returning. What does it look like to return to God in light of our knowledge of the future holiness of the New Jerusalem? Well, I think we can make a couple mistakes here. One mistake would be to say, well, if everyone in the New Jerusalem is gonna be holy, then I better try really, really hard to be holy right now so that I'm counted worthy to be there. This is called works righteousness, it's the heretical belief that we can approve ourselves before God by becoming righteous and holy by our own works. And another way we can fall off on the other end of the spectrum is, it would be to say, well, if everyone in the New Jerusalem is gonna be holy, then my personal holiness right now doesn't really matter. Called antinomianism, anti law. It's the heretical belief that because we're forgiven and, and covered in Jesus, then we're free to just sin and do whatever we want. And both of these pitfalls can occur in the church when we fail to understand the doctrine of justification by faith alone, with our heads and with our hearts. With our heads, the doctrine of justification by faith alone means that we are justified which means to be considered righteous in the eyes of the holy God, we are justified only by faith in Jesus and in what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. It's like this, by nature, we all sit on death row because we all have sinned and our sin makes us deserving. Our sin before the holy God makes us deserving of death. But then Jesus comes in and says, I am without sin, I can carry out your death sentence in your place and you can walk free with my spotless record of righteousness. Theologians call this transaction double imputation, which is just a fancy way of saying that at the cross, our record of unrighteousness was imputed or credited to Jesus and he dies to take it away. And Jesus' righteousness is credited to us by grace through faith. A lot of you probably know 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It talks about this, saying that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. So to put it real simple, sim, real sim, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> goodness, real simply on the cross, Jesus gets what we deserved, and we get what Jesus deserved. Unholiness for holiness, death for life. Martin Luther called it the great exchange. And what does this do in our hearts? Man, if an innocent person suffered and died for our damnable crimes, how could we, having been so graciously set free, just go back out and keep committing the same crimes with impunity? What a mockery! of that costly sacrifice. And so I think to return to God in light of the future holiness of the New Jerusalem would be to quite simply understand and lean into the gospel, which tells us that Jesus was pierced with the flaming sword of God's holiness to open up a way, and the only way, of access through the wall of fire into the holiness of God, and to cover us with his holiness so that we can enter in without being consumed. That's the gospel. And this gives us a reason to sing and to rejoice that the righteousness of Jesus covers his people right now like a garment, and that God now sees his people as holy and pure in him. O watching world, Stand in silence, for God still sees you as unholy and impure, still sitting on death row, awaiting the flaming sword of God's holy wrath to come. And the third, final question is this, how should the future glory of the new Jerusalem inform our returning, our singing and rejoicing in the world's silence? So first, our returning. What does it look like to return to God in light of our knowledge of the future glory of the New Jerusalem? Well, I know that all of us, at one point or another, have gotten way off track, or have been broken inside, or have watched things in our life fall apart into rubble and ruins, and who knows? Who knows if we'll ever find our way back home? And who knows if we'll ever be healed? And who knows if things will ever be put back together the way they were? And the divine blueprint tells us that God knows and that more than finding our way back home, home will be coming to us when heaven meets earth. And more than being healed, we will be glorified, made new without defect when heaven meets earth. And more than things being put back together the way they were, things will be better than they've ever been before when heaven meets earth. Now you might hear that and be thinking, that is great news, Dylan. And I am looking forward to the coming of the God of glory, but what do I do with that today? Because today it's still just earth down here and I feel like I'm off track broken inside, sitting in a pile of things that have fallen apart, here's what you do. You seek the God of glory now. Listen, seek the God of glory now because God's glory isn't just going to find us in the future, God's glory is finding us now in the present. Here's what I mean. To the prodigal who's gotten way off track Have hope and turn back because, in the moment you do, you'll find that the Father has already come running out to embrace you. Glory will find you into the broken who just feels ugly, misshapen, deformed, Frankensteinish in light of the holiness of God. You hear the story of my three legged stool and you think, my heart is like that. To the broken, have hope and boast in your weakness, which reminds you of the graciousness of the God who altered your course when you were bound for the burn pile. See the glory that has found you and is finding you still. And further, trust that God is still working on you. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says that we are God's workmanship. It doesn't say that we are God's finished product. God is still working on you, still shaping you, Still sanding off your rough edges and your splinters. And be encouraged by this God is not ashamed to put his name on you, like I was to put my name on my stool. He is not ashamed to claim you as his own, saying, You are mine. You are my child. I love you. And to the returned exile, who looks at their life and sees nothing but a wasteland of rubble and ruins. Have hope and trust that God still has a wonderful plan for your life because this whole thing, life, existence, this whole thing is God's creation and redemption product uh, project and he has foreordained the end and the means to achieve that end from the beginning and nothing has happened outside of his sovereign providential control. And you are in his hand. And nothing that has ever happened in your life has somehow been outside of this divine blueprint. The divine blueprint. And if I may be so bold, I might say this too. Maybe, maybe God has allowed things in your life to fall apart to cause you to seek him, to cause you to run to him, to cause you to cling to him. And if that's the case, what a glorious grace of God to allow our kingdom to crumble for us to truly find our place in his. Now I'll just share this with you. A few years ago in my life, I felt like things were crumbling down all around me. I felt like my life was crumbling down. And I won't get into all the details, but decisions were made in my family that led to its implosion and divorce and estrangement and untold destruction. But in the midst of the most difficult and confusing moment of my life, someone from this church reached out to me to see how I was doing. And as a result, I visited Cedar Home. Glory found me. And after my first visit, I came back a few weeks later for my second visit, and someone that I had met on my first visit found me, came and said hi to me, remembered my name, and said that she had been praying for me every day since the first time I came. Glory found me. And so I kept coming back. In this church, the, the people, Pastor Dan's preaching, all of it ministered to my soul at that time in a way that I, I cannot express through words other than to say that glory found me. Glory found me. And long story short, about six months after my first visit here, I got hired here. And... About six months after that, I started dating a girl I met here named Natalie, who about a year later became my wife, who about a year and a half later bore our son Ezra. (laughs) And so I share this to tell you, listen, please listen, I share this to tell you, not that I've done anything right, I share this to tell you that none of this is just abstract theologizing for me. This is my life This is my life and now more than ever before, I am wholly convinced that as Pastor Dan talked about a few weeks ago, there is a hand of kindness holding me and God has had a purpose and a plan for everything that has happened in my life, good and bad. I know it. I know it when I hold my son and I know it when I look into the eyes of my wife and I know it every time I walk into this building. None of these things would be in my life if it were not for the gracious and merciful and faithful God who is sovereign over every detail of my life and yours. And That is something you and I can sing about and rejoice in, that the glory of the sovereign God is finding us still, even in the far country even when we are messed up, broken inside, and even when everything in our life has crumbled to the ground and we're sitting in, a, we're sitting in the heap. O watching world, stand in silence and seek this God of glory while he may still be found. Come out of the darkness into the light repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus as your only hope of salvation. He will make you holy and he will make you family and one day he will in glory come. So brilliant, shining like the sun to banish gloom and night, our God Eternal light. Will you stand with me as we close our service in prayer? Lord, we exalt you as the sovereign God who declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Yes, you will, Lord. We declare that, we, we pray, we glory in that. And Lord, we thank you that by your grace we, we have such a privileged part in that plan as your chosen, adopted, blood-bought people. We thank you that you were pleased to write us into the divine blueprint in such the way that you have. And Lord God, we entrust ourselves to you. We know that we're in good hands, the hands of a master craftsman, and kind hands, and gracious and merciful and faithful nail-pierced hands, Jesus. Lord God, I just ask that as we go away from this place this morning that you, by your Holy Spirit, would continue to apply this word to us and that you'd continue to change us in the ways that you have already planned for us. For your glory alone, in the name of your son, Jesus, amen. Amen. Thanks for coming, guys. Have a great afternoon.